Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast, where we cover everything about the Civil War that has been unjustly left out of your high school and college textbooks. This month is the first episode of a series I call Beyond the Blue and Gray. The massive Union and Confederate hosts were actually divided into separate regiments and companies. Each of these organizations had their own traditions, uniforms, and culture. In this series, we will bring a magnifying glass to these organizations in order to better understand them. Tonight, I had the privilege of interviewing Alan Payton. He is the expert on the 19th Georgia Regiment and has direct ancestral ties to the 19th. He gives us a better insight into the regiment, but he also covers the little-known Battle of Alusti. Percentage-wise, it was one of the Union's biggest defeats and it took place not on the fields of Virginia, but on the Florida Peninsula. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast. Today we are recording the first episode of a series I like to call Beyond the Blue and Gray. It is common for people to think of the northern and southern armies as two giant military formations. We often get caught up in corps and brigades, but in truth, these armies were fighting forces divided into individual regiments, and each with their own traditions, culture, history, uniforms, and personality. In this series, we will try to gain a better knowledge of those regiments. I'm here with Alan Payton, the expert on the 19th Georgia. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate you having me. So one of the big things that attracted me to the 19th Georgia was just looking at how far they traveled during their time in the Civil War. They were pretty much on every front. Some of the reasons you uh, study the 19th Georgia. Well, I guess the main reason is because I have a connection to the uh, regiment with uh, one of my ancestors. My uh, great-great-grandfather and a great-great-uncle were both in Company E of the 19th Georgia. And I've always been a uh, history buff. And um, once I started looking into uh, the 19th, I I got more interested in uh, just regimental histories. And I've read several, and I found one that's called Red Clay to Richmond by uh, John Fox, which I thought was excellent. And I also have an ancestor in the 35th. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if someone had uh, uh, written a regimental history on the 19th? So I decided that I would undertake that. So I've been working on this now for, I guess, about four years uh, in preparation for writing a regimental history. Oh, fantastic. I know that takes a lot of work to find all the research for a book. That's that's a real um, you gotta have a real passion to write. So, absolutely, absolutely, it's a lot. It's a lot of lot to it. And um, we've uh, I've, I've visited, uh, of course, archives, Atlanta History Center, been to several of the battlefields, and saw where the 19th was uh, located on those battlefields. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun, but it is a lot of work. Now, I know I mentioned that, you know, the 19th Georgia was pretty much everywhere during the Civil War. But um, are you you're in Georgia now or? That is correct. I live in Noonan, which is uh, just a little south of Atlanta. 
So being there, does that give you um, better access to maybe letters and uh, in the archives and stuff like that? Well, yeah, I do uh, travel to the Atlanta archives on a regular basis. And uh, the Atlanta History Center, they have uh, great information at the Atlanta History Center in Atlanta. And one of the things that I, I did is I contacted our local paper and, and a couple of papers in other counties where uh, the men came from, from the 19th, and asked them if they would run an article in, in there for me and kind of give me a little bit of publicity about trying to find some descendants in hopes that I would find some letters and maybe pictures and that sort of thing. And I, and I did have some limited success, limited success in doing that. But um, yeah, so I, I think there's an advantage to actually being here uh, where, the, uh, where the regiment was formed. Right on that note, when exactly was the 19th Georgia formed and uh, who made up the regiments? Uh, where were the soldiers exactly from in Georgia? And what were they doing in civilian life before enlisting? Well, the regiment was actually formed in June of 1861. It had 10 companies, and it was made up of about eight counties that uh, are sort of in the central western Georgia area. Um, two, of the red, two of the companies were from Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is located, and two companies were from Carroll County, which is a western county that uh, borders the county that I live in, and it also borders the state of Alabama. And then uh, there was, uh, I, I guess that would be five more counties that, um, that made up the regiment. Uh, most of the guys were, were rural, uh, farm guy, farm boys, farm families, and many of them probably had never traveled more than about 15 or 20 miles from their homes until, of course, they became involved in the war. And um, that's, um, you know, I would say that's probably the vast majority were, were farm workers. Now, some of the officers were, there were some, uh, several lawyers uh, business owners, and that sort of thing. But uh, as far as the enlisted men, most of them were, were farm guys. And uh, once they were formed up, they're, of course, going to head into battles, see the big elephant, as they call it. But mm -hmm. actually, the first casualty was not under fire. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, there, I have read two accounts of a train accident that occurred on their way to the front, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Bale, who was in Company C, the uh, Palmetto Guards, had written has written a book called um, In Barracks and Field. And part of the book is more or less his poems about life, but there is a section in the book that covers his time with the 19th. And he mentions on the way to the front, the, um, the train that the regiment was on became uncoupled from another section. And as it was going down the, I, I guess, catching up with the part that became uncoupled, uh, there was a tremendous collision. And the first casualty of the 19th occurred in that train accident. And that would have been in August of 1861, 
as they were heading to uh, Lexington, Virginia. That just kind of brings to mind, I think, a lot of times when we read about uh, military history in general, we always think of the battles. We don't like to think about the logistics of getting thousands of people to the right place with food and supplies. And it turns out, as you can see in this story, that just getting there could be it means death for some people, you know, with disease and accidents on trains. So this is a tough line of work. Absolutely. And, and I think it's uh, uh, funny that you mentioned disease, too, because once they got into camp, I think that uh, one of the first challenges that the 19th had is that with these guys being farm boys, if you will, and them being in close contract contact with uh, other young men from different areas of, uh, of the country, uh, they had a huge outbreak of measles. And as a matter of fact, at one point, there was one company that had only, uh, I think, 15 men who were um, uh, eligible for, for duty that day because uh, so many of them had the measles. And oh, wow. That's, that happened while they were in camp up near Lexington getting ready to go uh, to the actual front for the, um, before the war really got started uh, for, for the 19th. So after surviving disease and then, you know, surviving train accidents, they finally do get to the front. Where was their first time uh, serving under fire? Well, the first time serving under fire, once they left Lexington, they were sent to uh, up around Manassas. And uh, Johnson's army was up there just sort of keeping an eye on what was going on on the other side of the Potomac. And uh, the 19th, was charged with doing some garrison duties up there. And they did have one uh, member of the uh, regiment who was injured, who was wounded in some gunfire while uh, serving as uh, pickets up in the picket duty up there in that area. But the, uh, the heavier fighting did not occur until the, um, the Peninsula campaign got underway when McClellan moved uh, the Army of the Potomac down for the landing uh, to try to invade Richmond, uh, coming in from uh, the peninsula down on the James. And how did they perform under fire for the first time compared to other units, you think? Well, they were green, so I'm sure that uh, as uh, probably as well as most of them did. There is a story that's in the book that I referred to earlier by, by John Dale, who said that uh, the, the first case that the 19th was severely under fire was at the Battle of Mechanicsville, which is also called the Battle of Beaverdam Creek. Uh, you know, the maps back then were, were not the greatest. And while the men were sent to meet uh, Porter's Union Army, uh, that was on the other side of a creek, they didn't realize that the swampy area that they were running down to. And the 19th went rushing down a hill. The guys were, were took uh, several casualties and were sort of pinned down, down by uh, Beaverdam Creek. And 
Um, as a matter of fact, Bale was one of the guys who was wounded. And as he was going back, he was the captain in um, Company C. On his way back, he was trying to make certain. He says, you need to get some guys down there to reinforce the 19th. They're getting killed on the, on the, on the, uh, down at the swamp. So, um, you know, so that, I think that was their first real uh, test as far as being in combat uh, was at Mechanicsville. And of course they would get tested again and again. Um, what campaigns did they serve in after that? Well, like you said earlier, this regiment was all over. I have tried to estimate the uh, number of miles that they traveled, and I've guessed that it's probably about 2,500. They went as far north as uh, Frederick, Maryland, and then, they, of course, they were involved in uh, Sharksburg at Antietam. And then as far south as they went was the Battle of Olusty, that's near Lake City, Florida. But after the seven days battles, of course, they were at uh, Cedar Mountain with uh, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, from Cedar Mountain, they went over to Manassas, where they fought the Second Battle of Manassas. And then from Manassas, they, they uh, crossed the river over into Maryland and camped for a few days at Frederick. And then from Frederick, Stonewall Jackson's division was sent over to Harper's Ferry, and they were engaged at the uh, surrender of the, of the Union troops at Harper's Ferry. But once they left Harper's Ferry, they went down to, uh, they, were, they were sent to uh, Sharksburg. And I don't know if you know anything about uh, A.P. Hill's role at Antietam, but uh, he sort of arrived just at the nick of time that many people think uh, to avoid Lee's army being annihilated at Sharksburg. Uh, I think that A.P. Hill's division ended up uh, arriving at Sharksburg around 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and their arrival made the difference. Um, after Sharksburg, the 19th uh, was charged with uh, rear guard duty while the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia uh, went back south into Virginia. And uh, they ended up having a pretty severe battle at uh, Shepherdstown. From Shepherdstown, they had a, this would have been in November, they had another engagement over at Castleman's Ferry as they were uh, found out that the Union uh, troops were moving toward uh, crossing the Shenandoah River there. Uh, in December, uh, latter part of November, first part of December, this would have been 1862, they were marched down to Fredericksburg, where they were on uh, put on Prospect Hill, which is um, where Jackson's troops were sort of south of Fredericksburg. Then from Fredericksburg, they went to Chancellorsville. From Chancellorsville, they were sent to Kinston or Wilmington, North Carolina. From there, they went down to Charleston, from Charleston to Savannah, Savannah to Olusty. From Olusty, they went back to Charleston, and then they were uh, stationed up around Petersburg. And they were there in Petersburg from, um, I guess that would be about June, May or June of 1864, 
to December of 1864. And then after uh, Petersburg, they went to uh, Wilmington. They were uh, sent there to try to prevent the Federals from capturing Wilmington, the last uh, major port open for the Confederacy to receive supplies. Uh, they were involved in the Second Battle of Fort Fisher in um, January of 1865. Then from there, uh, they went to Kinston and then Bentonville, and then the regiment finally surrendered at, at uh, Raleigh-Durham on April the 26th, 1865. Do you happen to have how many casualties they must have suffered? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, there's a book called Heroes and Martyrs of Georgia that sort of gives some detail about the number of casualties. Uh, according to that book, the regiment was initially made up of about 1,200 men, um, and they show that the casualties is about uh, about half. Now, wow. not all of them were, of course, uh, killed. Uh, right. There were, of course, a number that were wounded, and um, some, um, you know, there were some that became so ill they could no longer participate in the war. So there's a lot of reasons for uh, the regiment being depleted by almost a half. Not all because of um, of war-related. Uh, deaths. Right. And like you said, they're they're marching, they're traveling, there's sickness, disease um, and and lead storms on, on the battlefield. It, all of that um, weighs a toll on the regiment and the men in the regiment. But I'm going to take it back a little bit. Um, so on the Untold Civil War podcast, we like to talk about anything untold on the Civil War. And I really do think the Battle of Alusti does not get enough um airtime, if you will. Uh, not, I feel like not many people know about it, and it's great that we get to talk about the 19th and the Battle of Alusti in the same episode. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So uh, when did they get transferred to Florida again? Uh, they actually were uh, transferred to Florida in February of 1864. Okay. And, and maybe you can just help help, you know, help the listeners get an idea. Why was Florida so important for the Confederacy? Well, the uh, Union Army, Union Navy, I should say, had uh, made some progress at closing a number of the ports where the uh, Confederate Army uh, could in the past receive supplies. And as they continued to make progress at closing those ports, uh, the Confederacy had to look for other places to, uh, of course, get the supplies that they needed. And, and these would be supplies as, as, as varied as foodstuffs to, I mean, uh, turpentine, leather, whatever they needed. And they found, of course, that Florida happened to be sort of like the uh, breadbasket of the Confederacy by that time. So it was extremely important that uh, the rail lines and the uh, opportunity to get the supplies from Florida remain open. Uh, the Union Army became aware of that as well and thought that if they could shut down the, the uh, trail of supplies or the supplies coming out of Florida, 
going to the Army of Northern Virginia uh, in Petersburg and up around the Richmond area that maybe that could bring a, um, a quick end to the war. They got the idea that they would march from Jacksonville uh, west and basically tear up the, uh, the railroads and any other means of, uh, of transferring those supplies from Florida to the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, there are some other reasons that Florida became uh, more important at that time, too. You know, Lincoln's election was coming up. And there was some talk that uh, they felt that they may have enough support to garner Florida's entry back into the Union. I think that was more wishful thinking, and uh, it turned out to be more wishful thinking after the Battle of the Lusty, because that just was not the case. But I think that Lincoln was looking for any opportunity that he could find to uh, hopefully ensure his success in the election that was later that year. Almost but sort I, of the Hail, Hail Mary of the uh, election. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. But uh, that's why Florida became so important, is it basically became the breadbasket for the Confederacy. So the Union troops were trying to get to those railroads. And does a lusty sit on those railroads? Well, the railroads, there was one that ran east to west in northern Florida, and then they had others that were, you know, they would transfer to south Georgia. And uh, those rail lines, yes, were the ones that they were using to uh, to transfer the supplies. So the Union Army uh, went in basically uh, in an effort to disrupt that supply chain. And as they're marching west, uh, Joseph Finnegan, who was in charge of the Confederates in, uh, in Florida, realized pretty quickly that he needed additional support. And uh, he had requested that Beauregard send uh, other regiments down to, uh, to his aid. And the 19th, uh, Georgia was one that was sent down under, they would have been under Alfred Colquitt at that time. And there's several good books on uh, the Battle of Olusty, if anyone is interested. Uh, one of them, uh, there's a quote in there from one of the guys in one of the Florida brigades who describes the 19th as they're arriving in uh, around Olusty and said that they uh, were pretty well known for their uh, uh, battles and being hardened uh, veterans and that they had sort of a devil-may-care attitude, which I thought was, was pretty interesting. But nonetheless, um, as they saw the Union uh, Army marching from the Jacksonville area toward the center of the uh, panhandle of Florida, uh, what happens is the, uh, the two armies sort of clash at Olusty. And I think that one of the reasons that the battle doesn't get the recognition that uh, some of the more well-known battles uh, do is because of the uh, number of uh, combatants involved. All total, there was probably about, uh, I think, uh, 5,000 uh, uh, troops involved on each side. Uh, and, you know, given a, the scope of a, a Antietam or a Gettysburg or right. Manassas, right. Uh, you know, they're, they're sort of small. What were the opening shots to the battle? Well, I think that uh, the biggest, 
you know, the biggest mistake that a lot of the commanders made on both sides is not making a, uh, a concerted effort when they were trying to uh, move forward. In other words, they would be sending in these regiments and these companies sort of piecemeal. And that's kind of what happened in Florida. The uh, Union uh, commander store sent in, uh, you know, a company and they were charged with going in and sort of uh, capturing uh, what supplies they could, maybe bringing in some Confederate prisoners to try to get a, get a good feel of uh, what, uh, what was going on as far as uh, Finnegan's troops were concerned. And so they were sort of coming in piecemeal. And uh, there were, I believe, about one third of the troops uh, in the Union Army were of the U.S. colored troops. They had the 54th Massachusetts was there. The 8th uh, U.S. colored troops were there. And I want to say it was the 6th. There, I know there were three. But right. uh, they were coming up. And what Finnegan had done, he basically had laid a trap for uh, the Union soldiers to sort of draw them in to where the battle actually occurred at, uh, you know, in the South, it was known as the Battle of Ocean Pond. It's known as the Battle of Olusti, I guess is, is more prominently. But he would sort of draw them in. So he would send out the, the skirmishers to try to uh, uh, get the Union soldiers to follow them back to the trenches where he had a pretty heavily fortified earthworks back uh, closer to where the actual battle occurred. And uh, once they, they uh, of course, came in contact with each other, the fire became pretty hot. As a matter of fact, some of the veterans said that they didn't remember a, uh, a more uh, intense fire, even at Gettysburg, than they experienced at Olusti. And um, the 19th, was actually stationed in the, on the far right of Finnegan's line at the battle. And sort of to their right was the 6th Florida. And uh, they, uh, I guess one of the most difficult or the most trying times for the 19th is during the battle, they actually ran out of ammunition at one point and uh, Colquitt basically told them to hang on for 15 minutes and uh, they would uh, they would be replenished. But he did order them to go ahead and fix bayonets. And uh, John Keeley, who was a uh, captain in Company B, that's the uh, Jackson Guards, they were from Atlanta. He had written an article for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution back in 1931, and he described that uh, how uh, difficult it was to try to maintain uh, their composure there when they were out of ammunition and uh, facing the Union soldiers marching in their directions. Matter of fact, he said that the men were grabbing the uh, the shells or the or the ammunition faster than a hungry man was grabbing his would be grabbing for bread. Uh, there's also another interesting uh, story by a gentleman up in uh, from Paulding County who was at the battle. Now, he wasn't in the 19th, but the 19th was made up of Colquitt's uh, brigade, which was the 
the 19th Georgia, 27th Georgia, 23rd Georgia, and I think the 6th Georgia. And uh, he said that they captured so many artillery pieces in the battle that he got so excited, he ran up and jumped on a uh, sort of straddle on one of the cannons, not thinking about it being hot, and he blistered his backside by jumping <laughs> up on that, <laughs> on that hot cannon, which I thought was pretty funny. And there when is the, a... When the adrenaline starts. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And there's another story of one of the guys mentioning that Olusti, at Olusti, that at one point they captured more prisoners than they actually had men in their regiment. Oh, wow. And on that note, so I actually was able to find one quote from a letter from the 19th Georgia, uh, a letter from Cor- Corporal Henry Shackleford. I'm probably yeah. butchering that. Shackleford? Yeah, sure. uh, um, and I won't read the whole letter, but there's just one part where he does talk about um, how the 19th did during the battle. Mm-hmm. And he says here, the Yankees were giving back and on our pushing forward pitched three and I'll say colored regiments against us and all acknowledged they fought well. We walked over many a woolly head as we drove them back. The Yanks couldn't stand before Georgia boys and finally gave way and ran, our boys pursuing. We got all their artillery, eight pieces, took about 400 prisoners, and killed about the same numbers. Um, And later on he says, our regiment lost 97 killed and wounded. Company A lost one man killed Mm -hmm. and eight or ten wounded. Mm -hmm. So... With that quote, as I understand it, the 19th was actually fighting these U.S. colored regiments. Was this the first time they ever bumped into colored regiments? And do you have anything more on their opinion of uh, fighting colored regiments? No, this was not the first time. As a matter of fact, the first first time they were uh, engaged with the U.S. colored troops would have been in uh, July of 1863. They were stationed on uh, James Island, which is south of Charleston. And that is where uh, Battery Wagner is. And you know, the the 54th Massachusetts, of course, is famous for their charge at Battery Wagner. And, uh, but before that battle, the uh, the 19th was uh, sent down to I guess the south end of uh, James Island when they they were informed that there were some Union troops landing uh, coming up the river there and um, uh, landing on at, at that point of James Island they were sent down then and that's when they first uh, encountered uh, the U.S. colored troops I think it was interesting. Uh, when I read in one of my books uh, that once they kept, they captured a number of prisoners from the 54th and they weren't quite sure what to do with them um, because there was nothing in the regulations about how to, I guess, formally process uh, the colored troops if they were taken prisoner. 
And I think it was interesting that they ended up sending them to the uh, Charleston City Jail. Oh, wow. Until they could get further clarification on on processing uh, the, the, the prisoners. And what the, what the procedure would be, right? That's, that's um, correct. And I know, as you mentioned before, the Battle of Alusti, you know, because of the small numbers, uh, it's probably why it was overlooked, because we have Antietam, we have Gettysburg. Um, but as we stated before, when we talked about the importance of Florida, uh, I think Alusti definitely uh, deserves um, you know, more recognition and definitely deserves a space on the Untold Civil War podcast. Um, but what exactly was the battle's aftermath? The, the, I know the Union lost the battle, and it was one of the biggest defeats percentage-wise, correct? That's correct. I think it was number three in terms of percentage of casualties compared to the number of combatants involved. That's wow. correct. But uh, after the battle, of course, the, the uh, Union troops uh, headed back east toward Jacksonville, and uh, the Finnegan had sent uh, some of his troops to pursue them. And I believe that I read that because of, the, I think the battle last, I've read anywhere from four to six hours. So after these guys have been fighting for four to six hours, I don't know how, uh, how heavily they pursued the Union troops. But uh, as far as I know, after the battle was over, uh, they would, um, you know, they, they spent some time burying the dead, uh, collecting the wounded, processing prisoners, and um, uh, the Union, of course, moved on away from Jacksonville and headed back up toward uh, Charleston uh, over, over the period of the next few days and weeks to come. And also, too, I believe that, I think it was Seymour, that uh, he got quite a bit of, um, of criticism for the uh, Union Army's performance uh, at Olusti or Ocean Pond. So after this, the 19th goes on to serve with John, they surrender with Johnson, correct, eventually? That is correct, yes. Uh, after Olusti, the, uh, I think they were down there for a few um I guess a few weeks, maybe a month or so, and then they were sent back to Charleston. And then they weren't in Charleston very long, and they were sent on to um, to Petersburg uh, because of, uh, of course, the siege of Petersburg would have been coming up, I guess, about that time. And they were in the trenches around Petersburg. Uh, uh, they were at the Battle of the Crater. Um, and, you know, Petersburg... I think Grant learned his lesson about uh, full frontal assaults on a uh, heavily fortified uh, position or entrenched positions at Cold Harbor. Uh, the 19th was there as well. So what he tried to do at Petersburg basically is he had a number of flank assaults that he tried to accomplish to to uh, to get on the flanks of Lee and get behind him and uh, basically move on to Richmond. And the 19th was involved in, um, I believe it was August, the battle at Globe Tavern and the Battle of Reams Station and Weldon Railroad. And that, 
that battle is interesting because the lines were so confused in terms of where these divisions were, where the companies were. And there's a story that I think is very interesting that Alfred Colquitt uh, told in one of his speeches. Now, this was after the war, but he mentions the Battle of Weldon Railroad and Captain, uh, Captain Neal of the 19th who said they had gotten separated basically from, from the regiment and ran into some uh, Union soldiers. And they asked the Union soldiers to surrender. The Union soldiers asked the 19th guys to surrender. So here's the, uh, here's the interesting thing. They decided that since they were both lost, that they would walk together and the first regiment that they came to in their march back, if it was Union, then the Confederates would surrender. If it was Confederate, then the Union would surrender. The Union troops would surrender. A gentlemanly deal. Yeah. So uh, as they were marching back, uh, as, you, as luck would have it, the first troops they ran into was uh, a Confederate uh, group. And so the uh, the Union soldiers had to surrender to the Confederates at that time, which I thought was an interesting story. Yeah, hey, there are moments where uh, people stop to think and figure this out, uh, sort of humani- um, humanity in war- yeah. warfare, yeah. and you see stories like that. That's um, exactly that- right, which I, I think is fine. And then they, they surrender with Johnson. At that point, the, the, the regiment is disbanded, I'm assuming, or— and um, what happens to the, some of the members of the regiment after the war? Well, uh, the guys are processed there at Greensboro. I, I think that they end up, uh, I believe that I've read that most of them are finally processed at the beginning of May. And I guess they just make their way back to their homes uh, the best way that they can. If they get back home and they still have a home and, and farms and that sort of thing, they go back to work on those. Uh, several uh, of the members went on to uh, be business owners, educators, went back to law practices. Now, I don't know how long after the war all of this took place because, you know, the, the, the turmoil and the, the uh, chaos that was going on with Reconstruction and the months right after the war. Um, but uh, John Keeley uh, became a business owner in Atlanta. He owned a uh, dry goods store. Alfred Colquitt. The, uh, the brigade commander, he became governor of Georgia uh, in 1870-something. Um, there was one, a, Mr. a John Anderson, who became a, an educator and founded a boys' school in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, most of them, if they, um, they went back to what they did. One interesting point that I didn't mention is at the Battle of Olusty, my uh, great-great-grandfather was wounded in the leg resulting in the amputation of his leg uh, below the knee. And he walked with a uh, wooden peg for the rest of his life. And because he was a farmer, he was, of course, quite anxious about how he was going to make a living with that, uh, with that wooden leg. But um, anyway, he, he made it through and um, fathered several children, and obviously, and... Um, Went on with his life. That's fantastic. I love that. I love that story. Show, shows you that there there was life 
after the Civil War, that yes, people absolutely. were able to uh, not fully recover, but um, come together and, and move on. That's right. That's right. You know, I think every generation has those defining moments. And obviously for that generation, the Civil War was was their defining moment that probably impacted a lot of their choices going forward after that. And uh, all the hardships that the guys had to endure. And, uh, you know, it's just a fascinating story to me. Uh, did you do you know if your family members ever joined any of the veteran groups out of curiosity? No, I have not been able to find that. You know, I, I have found several pictures of reunions of members of the 19th, but it was uh, more of the ones that were in the, um, I guess, some of the more eastern counties, not the ones uh, in the western county. Sort of coming to the end now, but there's still a little bit more to talk about. I know you've mentioned some of the books that you read and would recommend throughout the uh, throughout the interview. But um, would you like to just mention some of them again? Um, what books you recommend to people who would like to learn more about the 19th or the Battle of Alusti? Yeah, absolutely. There, I have some favorites that I've read. Uh, one of them is called Confederate Florida. That one's written, written by William Nutley. Uh, another one that I mentioned where the description of the uh, 19th soldiers was, was printed is called The Battle of Olusty, and that one is by uh, Robert P. Broadwater. Uh, while they were at uh, uh, Charleston, uh, of course, they performed garrison duty at, uh, at Battery Wagner and, of course, at, uh, you know, at Fort Sumter. And there's a book out there by uh, Stephen R. Wise called Gate of Hell, and it covers the uh, Charleston siege and the activities that were going on around that time. And then another one uh, that is about the fall of uh, Fort Fisher up at Wilmington is called Confederate Goliath. And that one is by Rod Gregg, G-R-A-G-G. -G. That one is excellent as well. And of course, there's going to be your book. Um, Absolutely. Any, any news on that when that's coming out? Well, I... Uh, my uh, New Year's resolution was to finish it this year, so I I'm hoping that I can make some good progress in getting that. Maybe uh, next year, hopefully, find uh, find it being published. Oh, fantastic! And and hopefully, I'll definitely buy and hopefully get a signed copy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, definitely keep me posted on that when when that comes out. I definitely want to. Maybe we'll do another interview about the book specifically. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. And if people want to learn more about the 19th, they can also go to your Instagram page, right? Um, where, where can they find that? What's your Instagram uh, page? Yes. If they will go just type in 19th Georgia Infantry, my uh, Instagram page should pop up. And I do post a lot of my research on that page and things that I find that I think are interesting. So, uh, yeah, if they want to know more, they can look there until the book's published. And, and there you go. There you have it. I, I'll, I'll definitely say that I, I love the page. That's how I found out about the 19th Georgia. And there, there is so much on that page as far as research, pictures, um, all sorts of documents on there. So I definitely recommend people go on there, uh, like, share, and, and the rest. So thank you for coming on the podcast. It really means a lot for you to come on and, and be interviewed. 
I know some people, they, you're very skeptical about being interviewed and then put on the internet. So I'm glad you uh, had the courage to do that. So thank you very much for coming on this. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity and um, look forward to, uh, to hearing from you again. Thank you. You as well. You have a good night. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. We are at the end of this episode of the Untold Civil War podcast. Hope we kept you entertained during your commute to work, while doing the dishes, walking the dog, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Craig Duncan for allowing me to use his music on this podcast. For more on him, please go to his website, www.craigduncan.net. Also, if you enjoy this podcast and haven't already, please follow the Untold Civil War podcast Instagram page. On there, you'll get all sorts of updates, behind-the-scenes info, and images that pertain to every individual episode. So bye for now, and hope to have you tune in next month for our next episode.